Before we begin the podcast, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on stolen and unseeded Gadigal lands. We have a rich and fulfilling life when we're doing what matters and what matters to us is what um, we most value in life. Welcome back to That's Hot, the podcast helping you get even hotter than you already are by giving you all of the information that you need to help the world get cooler. I'm Tegan. And I'm Lizzie. Today's episode is very exciting. We are chatting to Dr. Susie Burke, a psychologist, researcher, writer, and climate change campaigner. This is such an important issue to us. We're, we're going to be exploring some ideas of, of eco-anxiety. Um, before we get into it, Lizzie, um, how do you feel about eco-anxiety? Do you, do you experience it? I think these days, maybe not so much, but it was definitely a big motivating factor for why I got involved in climate in the first place. I find mm. having been more involved working in this space, I'm always struck by how optimistic most people are in the climate movement. I think for me, that's been really helpful, but you know, it definitely yeah. comes up in moments. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I feel exactly the same as you do. Because I'll- we are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> we are. <laughs> Copy and paste. Um, no. And I'll explore some more of, of my like personal anecdotes in the episode, but I think as well, we we recently did a post about this on our Instagram and a lot of people are experiencing eco-anxiety. So I think what we cover in today's episode is really, really important. And There's some strategies as to how to deal with those feelings. So very excited for it. I'm very excited to hear it. So let's get into it. Woo! That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. Hi, Susie. Welcome to the podcast. Can you please introduce uh, yourself for our listeners um, and give them a little bit of an idea about your background and how you found yourself um, at this intersection between psychology and climate change? Sure. Hi, Tegan. Well, my name's Susie Burke. I'm a psychologist and I have been working for the last 20 years in the space of psychology and the public interest. Um, So that's an idea of using psychology and psychological research and knowledge to contribute to community well-being. It's kind of like giving psychology away for free. Um, You know, the things that everyday people can learn about themselves and about human behaviour in the world that can help to improve conditions in the world for all species uh, and people. And for many, many years I was doing that at the Australian Psychological Society. I'm not still working there, but for many years I enjoyed working in a public interest team. And increasingly uh, there I was working on uh, climate change and disasters. So I was both looking at the ways in which disasters impact humans' mental health and community wellbeing and looking at ways in which people and communities can rebuild and recover following a disaster. But of course, if you're interested in disasters, you are going to be interested in climate change because one of the things we know about climate change is that that it increases the frequency and intensity of almost all extreme weather event disasters. And that's a huge problem for us. So I actually was interested in the climate change before I was interested in the disasters. It was just that the disasters have a have a knack of um, gazumping whatever you're working on. All of a sudden it's like, oh, heck, the whole eastern board is, you know, impacted by a bushfire threat and um, we need to respond to that. So Exactly. But the work that I was doing in climate change uh, came from um, an awareness that 
that psychologists had a responsibility and a really important place to play in the climate change um, action and research because, well, for three reasons. I used to say to people when they say, what's a psychologist doing working in climate change? I would say, well, there's three reasons. So the first reason is that because climate change is caused by human behaviour, psychologists as experts in human behaviour ought to be very interested in that. Um, and then secondly, climate change has a huge impact on our psychological well-being and our mental health, sort of the whole spectrum from, you know, stress and worry all the way through to, you know, significant mental health problems. And so being people who are interested in people's mental health, that's, again, sort of very much something that we should be interested in. And thirdly, all of the changes that are required in human behaviour to respond to the problem of climate change and to restore a safe climate require changes in human behaviour at all levels of society. And so, again, as experts in human behaviour, how could we not be fascinated and uh, want to be really involved in that? So those are the three reasons why, when I was working at the Australian Psychological Society, we were starting to increasingly look at the role that psychology could play in helping us understand impacts and solutions to climate change. Mm, yeah, of course. And then I discovered that there's decades of research done by social scientists and the social scientists in psychology that particularly do this research are often called environmental psychologists. Yeah. But, um, but social psychologists who are experts in sort of group behaviour um, have also got a great uh, research history looking at these questions as well, sort of conservation behaviours and how humans can change their behaviour and in fact, you know, any branch of psychology or, you know, discipline of psychology can be interested in some aspect of climate change. And, I mean, that's an actually an interesting point because really any of us, no matter what we're working on in our current jobs or our professions, can always find a way of being able to uh, use our skills and our knowledge and our workplace <laughs> to be able to take action on climate change. So yeah, it's no surprise that psychologists, you know, are also can be also interested in that. Exactly. So on International Women's Day, we put together an Instagram post sort of exploring the idea of eco-anxiety, but in like taking the lens, like the gendered lens approach um, to looking at that and exploring the idea that women suffer from eco-anxiety at higher rates than men do. So I'm super interested to get your perspective on that and like how you see different genders experiencing eco-anxiety and, and working through those feelings. Well, good question. And it sounds like a terrific podcast that you did last week. Good on you. And I have come across some articles looking at the differential impacts on women and men. So I do know there were a few studies, but I can't quote back to you any statistics. Um, but the one study that I did used to try to remember the stats on did identify that women tended to have higher rates of concern than men and that wasn't um, distinguishing different ages. I also know that there are some papers that have looked at youth participation in climate activism and the young girls tend to be the um, more active um, in the sort of 
mid to late teens. So there is also an interesting sort of gendered um, sort of fun fact or interesting fact uh, that I have also read in the and so this other particular one was looking at um, the the influence of children on their parents' environmental attitudes and values. And what they found was that young teenage women, girls, young people, sort of around 13, 14, 15, were the best persuaders of their usually male parent, their fathers, right? Um, And this was a stronger effect amongst the families where the fathers tended towards conservative values. Interesting. So the one paper that was looking at this, and it was an American study, um, and I can almost provide you the author's name. It was a Lawson et al. Um, So, yes, they were looking at this and and found this phenomenon, which was and it sort of makes sense when you think about it because 13, 14, 15-year-old girls compared to boys at that age do tend to be quite articulate mm. and outspoken, perhaps surpassing the boys of similar age. So you would then expect that you would find that effect that the girls are actually better and more persuasive. Um, and it also we also understand that finding as being about oh, the relationship between the child or the young person and the parent, you know, that parents, some parents are very good at, be, at allowing, you know, respecting their children's ideas and values and allowing themselves to be persuaded and to learn from their children. So yeah. that's an interesting finding. And, of course, there has been quite some research looking at which way do environmental values get influenced. You know, are young people influence their parents or how much do, to what extent do parents influence their 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 children and their young people? And, of course, that depends on the age of the young person as well. And mm. it also depends a lot on the quality of the parent-adolescent or parent-child relationships as well. Yeah, of course. I'm really glad that you brought up the the age sort of discussion around it um, because that was something that I was going to ask. And I, I guess it also made me think like we went to the most recent school strike for climate um, a few weeks ago in Sydney and I've been going to their strikes for years and I just think it is so inspirational. Like hearing, like kids are so, so persuasive and you want to believe them more because of, um, I guess, their age and like the passion that they have at that age. So totally um, can see why that paper um, or like how that paper came to, to that conclusion because it's definitely what I I see from my experience. I guess now turning into that more like nitty gritty of human behavior that you mentioned earlier, what is it that makes people want to take action on the climate? Um, And I guess on the flip side of that, what are the barriers that are stopping them from from taking those actions? So those two questions are really related, aren't they? Because, of course, the barriers, the psychological barriers, um, so, I mean, there's both 
physical and economic and yeah. other sorts of values, yeah. but the psychological but the psychological barriers are the ones that I've sort of looked most into. So, I mean, just to explain, a physical barrier would be if you were really motivated to take public transport, but there was no public transport in the suburb in which you live, then you're not going to be able to take public transport. Um, or if finances are preventing you from being able to purchase a, an electric vehicle, for example, then you're yep. going to continue to be burning fossil fuels even if you've got no public transport. So there are those sorts of infrastructural, physical and economic barriers as well. But the psychological barriers do really feed into that question of what makes somebody be uh, one to do something about climate change. And there was a paper many years ago by an environmental psychologist in the UK called David Uzzle, and he had a matrix where he was looking at um, the woulds and the coulds and the won'ts and the don'ts, right? And so he was looking at those people that would if they could but yep. can't, um, and then there was those who could but don't. Very Dr. Zussi. <laughs> yeah, it was great. This is a great paper. He wrote that years ago. It was, I yeah. don't know, 2010, I think, was was that paper. And he, uh, luckily for the Brits, became a part of or was able to influence a behavioural change um, aspect of the government of the mm. time. So they were using environmental psychologists' research and knowledge and skills to help them develop sort of climate change programs uh, in the community or and policy making. So, yes, mm. his woulds and counts and won'ts and don'ts was a useful sort of thing for people to get their heads around. Um, yes, so and those and that was looking at the various different barriers. Um, but just as a very sort of higher level um, sort of um, tell of whether somebody's going to get involved and take action or not would be the extent to which they see climate change as salient and relevant, right? Mm. So is this relevant to me? Like do I have to care about this? Uh, so the awareness that actually climate change is relevant to you because it is going to have an impact on your life now and in the future and people you care about's life. Um, and is it salient? I can't remember now how to describe the difference between salient and relevant, but there is a subtle difference. But anyway, that mm. you know, to be able to see is this does this actually matter to me and, and do I have to do something about it? So then one of the barriers that we know is what we call um temporal and spatial distancing. So there's a little bit more jargon. So temporal means time. So we distance things that are that are distant in time. So if something happens far away in time, we tend to discount its importance to us. So we see it as being less relevant or it's less salient. Um, and if it's distant from us spatially, so spatial means sort of space, if it's far away geographically, it's in another, if we think that the climate that climate change is impacting other people in other parts of the world that's far from us. Again, we don't see that as being so relevant to us. So one of the things that we need to do in our messaging around climate change is help people to see that climate change is here now and for sure. And so then one of the ways in which we can do that is by getting people in communities to become citizen scientists and to be 
getting them to become more aware of some of the changes in their own communities. So creek beds that have seemed to have been dry for a long time. I mean, that can be put down to a drought, but then a drought is going to be uh, worse and more severe and more frequent in um, climate change altered future anyhow. So it's looking for those sorts of differences, differences in the seasons, the, the time that the wattle comes out like here wattle is meant to come out in august and when it comes out in july you can go how come it's coming out in july what does this mean what does this mean (laughs) you know that's tied in with you know overall increase in, in warm temperatures um so and the other uh way is to be looking at extreme weather event disasters and being able to have sensitive conversations around how that um you know, is a good example of the sorts of strange and unseasonable or, or out of the normal weather that is probably caused by overall rising temperatures. And then there's a whole lot of literature that also looks at uh, how to do that messaging because when a community has been impacted by an extreme weather disaster, they that's not necessarily the time when they want to hear that being talked about as a climate change event. What mm. they want to be about is we're a great community, we're going to look after our people, we can get through this, we're survivors, we're going to rebuild, mm. you know, um, we can do this. That's the yeah. sort of the conversation of the people who have been impacted. But for the rest of us that are looking on, that's actually a really bloody good time to be talking about, oh, right, this is a good example of climate change impacts and that helps mm. because, of course, it's not just the community that are physically impacted by an extreme weather disaster for people that are worrying and aware of the threat of climate change that's a, another truly alarming sort of consequence that feeds into their increased awareness and you know unsettled feelings about it and that's impactful as well so those sorts of implications that you know that can be helpful as well i think like it is really interesting trying to find that balance of communication and messaging because, of course, communicating the like here and now-ness of climate change is so important. But I, I also feel like that can also lead to those feelings of anxiety for people who, like, say, for example, we are sharing content about the latest climate disaster uh, both for like educational reasons, but also just to show people that there is this link between like the, this latest natural disaster and climate change. But I'm guessing that there are a lot, there are people out there that would see that content that we put out on whatever platform we do, and that creates those feelings of anxiety for them. So like finding that balance in terms of messaging is really it's really interesting and something that we're still like trying to evolve in our own processes. Yeah. Yeah, really good point. And, you know, there's a few different ways in which you can understand that as well because some people could be thinking, oh, well, too bad. So people just can feel uncomfortable about it. It is uncomfortable. Mm. It's the inconvenient truth of climate change. Exactly, especially for the people that are experiencing the the natural disaster. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So suck it up. It's Tegan, am I allowed to swear on your program? Of course you can. (laughs) Okay, fine. The last thing I did, I wasn't allowed to, right? I had to be (laughs) So, you know, some people might say, yeah, you know, just suck it up. But 
what we also know from the psychological research is that when people do get distressed, they can actually respond to that distress in really unhelpful ways by shutting down, turning off, switching off, disengaging. Well, those are all words saying exactly the same mm. thing. Just repeat myself. <laughs> uh, and so that's another one of the barriers to climate change is um, uh, the, the doom messaging because of people's um, intolerance for too many of those uncomfortable feelings. And so Mm. then we tend, humans can tend to do something called dissonance, more jargon. Um, So cognitive dissonance is when you know that you should behave in a particular way um, but it's really hard for you to behave in that particular way or it's inconvenient and you and you haven't actually started doing that yet. So, for example, riding your bike instead of popping in the car um, or g- going on an overseas holiday by plane rather than hmm. something else. And if you're behaving in that way but you know that actually that's um, got a big carbon footprint, what we tend to do is change our thinking about the problem when we've got that cognitive dissonance, that dissonance between what we know to be a good, the right thing to do or whatever and our actual behaviours, and we tend to change our thinking. Um, and mm. so that's problematic as well because then we start to go, oh, yes, but, you know, it's not Australians that need to worry about their carbon footprint. It's the people in the other countries that have got really big populations. You know, Australia as a whole has got a relatively small carbon footprint compared to other countries with big populations. And so mm-hmm. we tend to do this sneaky sort of thinking about it. And, of course, that's another barrier to change. Yeah, of course. I think um, it was an, that's another thing I was going to bring up um, from what you mentioned earlier about citizen science and, like, going down to your local community group and looking at what's happening with the environment, like those opportunities to join a community and build a community. And I think that's so important uh, in terms of dealing with the feelings that come up uh, with climate change. Um, I know, I I guess we are sort of building somewhat of a community online and and helping people to connect in that way. So um, that's, I guess, how we uh, are trying to approach uh, our climate action. It's a good lead into the oh, next. Before, before you do lead into the next question, I just wonder if I yes. quickly summarise then the main barriers so that people can then follow up and look at them themselves. Because one of the ways in which we can best overcome the barriers is because we know that this is a barrier. And so it helps to know. So um, there's two um, bodies of work that people would find really useful. And one is some work by a Norwegian environmental psychologist called Per, per, per Epsom Stockness. And he um, has he's got a great TED talk which talks about the five barriers that he has summarised as being distance, I talked about that before, doom, dissonance, um, denial and identity. So the identity that we have, it's not really a D, but he's cheated there, but he's Norwegian, so what is he? <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so he summarises them, you know, using those uh, great little categories and that's a, a great TED Talk. And the other one is a Canadian environmental psychologist, um, Bob Gifford, and he talks about the seven dragons of inaction. So he's um, subsumed a whole lot of the psychological barrier into these seven dragons, he calls them. And so one of them is limited cognition. So the way in which that's that's an, an example of that would be dissonance, the way in which we use our thinking to slip and slide away from actually sticking with the 
problem of climate change and, you know, I need to continue to be doing stuff about it. Um, and another one is other people. So the way in which we take our cues from other people and are influenced by other people. So if we think that the people around us are b- behaving in um, environmentally responsible ways, then we're much more likely to want to be like other people. So the influence of other people is enormously <laughs> Um, Im- impactful. Um, and so when organisations are trying to change people's behaviour, like water-saving behaviour or energy-saving behaviour, one of the best messages that they can be communicating is to be giving statistics to people about how what high numbers of people just like you are also you know, saving energy in this way. And you can see how it, the messaging on our water bills and our power bills have changed over the years as they've got various, um, you know, better experts in to advise them on how you don't want to get your bill that tells you that actually you're doing better than everybody else in your neighbourhood because there's a risk there that you'll go, oh, bug it. Yeah, I can roll it back. I don't need to do this much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, my showers are way too short. I should be having long showers because everybody else is. Right. But social comparison, you know, is a is a huge factor there. So knowing that it, um, is really important. So um, and then another one is uh, risk perception. So all of the different ways in which we perceive different risks, Ide- ideology. So that's the same as I- identity in the in the previous five yeah. um, Ds that I was telling you about. Mm. So. You know, our identity um, or the ideological views that we've got have a huge impact and will trump facts every time. So if we have an ideology um, like, you know, small government ideology, then we tend to, with that, we'll be supportive of, you know, free market, capitalism and a whole lot of other things that allow people to pollute and extract resources as much as they, they want, even in the face of the facts that we might be learning about this narrowing window of opportunity we have to reduce our carbon emissions drastically and to keep coal and gas in the ground. So uh, th- those of our worldview is very important. But another worldview is, um, you know, a belief in uh, green tech solutions. So, yeah. you know, that can also be a bit of a barrier because if we think, well, it'll be a green tech solution, a silver bullet solution that'll rescue us from this, mm-hmm. well, wouldn't that be awesome? We can't wait around for that to happen because it'll never just be one solution. And, um, yeah, and we've got this narrowing window of opportunity to be able to keep reducing um, the emissions to stop a whole lot of tipping points. So we actually can't afford to wait for that. So that's another ideology that can be a barrier as well. Mm-hmm. So another one then is sunk costs. So a sunk cost is something that where we've already sort of paid the money for something and therefore we're going to keep doing it. So if you've already got a car that's parked out the front of your house and you're thinking, I don't know, should I walk or yep. should I take the car? It's like, mm-hmm. well, I've already bought the car, so I should probably, and it's got a full tank of petrol, so I should probably just take the car or I could just take the car. Mm. So that's a, a sunk cost. So that's also a barrier. If we've invested in something, we're likely to continue to want to keep using it. Um and similarly, another sunk cost might be just habit. You know, if, if it is our habit to um, always do something, habits can be really hard to change. So if it's always mm. our habit, I don't know, to eat meat three times a week, um, we that's sort of a sunk cost. It's kind of just we're just in the habit of doing that and that, that can be quite hard to change because you have to remember actively to do something differently. And so... The, um, in, there's some 
fun research that looks at some of the ways in which you can, once you know that this is a barrier to you changing your behaviour, that you can interrupt. And again, I've drifted back into talking about individual level behaviour. But, um, <laughs> no, but, you know, individual level behaviour is actually also important because it keeps us on the ball of realising that thinking about and being aware of our actions um it's an important thing because, yeah, uh, you know, I'll come to that actually when we talk about how to deal with uh, eco anxiety, anyhow. Um, but yeah, so anyway, an example of that is to set up um, what are called optimal defaults. So, more jargon, yeah. an optimal default is uh, where you set up something in your environment so that the easiest thing for you to do is the optimal thing for you to do, i.e., the default thing for you to do. It's so easy, you're going to trip over it. So, the way in which you might do that around changing your car behaviour would be mm. to park your car a couple of blocks away, which I know sounds a bit weird, but, um, you know, yeah, but what we do know is that you can't just keep doing things the way we always have enjoyed doing them uh, and think that we can sort of restore that climate. So we do need to do sometimes absurd things. So, yes, and then it's not there when you walk out. It's like, oh, where's my car? Oh, that's right. Oh, it's blocks away. Oh, well, that's absolute pain. I might as well just start walking <laughs> now. Yeah. And, you know, things like that. Yeah, it makes, that makes so much sense. Um, and then the last one is um, – so is to do with our behavior so limited behavior we've got these habits of behavior that are very human and two examples that we use a lot are rebound and tokenism so i'll start with tokenism because everyone sort of knows what that is so tokenism is when you you uh do some small thing like you maybe just fill your kettle up with enough water just for the cup of tea that you're going to have and you think, you know, that's good. I've done my bit for the environment today because I've saved water. <laughs> and we can only keep ever so, so many things in our mind because life is full and busy and there's lots of things to think about. And so we can then tick that one off. And so that then is tokenistic and really it does bugger all. A lot of what we've spoken about today, like, comes back to finding a, a good balance, whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yes, and then doing a little bit more because we can always do a bit more. Yeah, exactly. So hearing all of those barriers, and there's so many, so it, it makes so much sense as to why people often feel like that they don't know where they can have an impact or there's so many reasons why it would stop them from, like, taking climate action. I guess this is a kind of a, a big question, but like how can you encourage people to turn their anxiety around climate change into action? Yeah, good question. So the, I'll just briefly talk about these two different models that I use when I'm working with people around helping them come to terms with the cope with climate change. So one of them is stress and coping model, which has been around since the 80s and it's um, – perfectly adapted to addressing uh, climate change distress and what to do with that. And so there's these three types of coping behaviours that we can use. One is emotion-focused coping, one is problem-focused coping, and one is meaning-focused coping. So emotion-focused coping are the things that we do to reduce the uncomfortable or upsetting emotions that we're feeling. So it might have nothing to do with climate change. Well, but the, the feelings might, but the things that we do mightn't. It might be sitting down and having a chat with a friend. It might be having a nap. It might be going out and spending some time in, in nature, having a walk, having a shower, listening to some beautiful music. Those are all examples of emotion-focused coping, incredibly 
important. Mm-hmm. The second one then is problem-focused coping. So these are the things that we do to tackle the problem, to reduce the problem that is causing our stress, which in this instance would be climate change. Um, and so problem-focused coping would be all the things that we can do to reduce the threat of climate change, which is climate mitigation behaviors. I mean, it can also be climate adaptation, but let's solve, <laughs> let's go with mitigation. So that would be all those things we were talking about, the individual level behaviors and the group level behaviors going right up to, you know, talking to world leaders and um, decision makers around the policies that we urgently require them to implement in the next very short amount of time um, yep. and reasons for why that is. So, yes, and... So there's lots of evidence that shows that action is the antidote to despair and that when we do these sorts of things, and as you said before, when you do something in a group, you also get the lovely benefits of the solidarity and connections and the soothing feeling that you get of knowing that you're not alone. And then the third one is the meaning-focused coping strategy. So these are the things that we do with our thinking, so to change the way in which we think about the problem so that we don't feel so despairing and so that we can sort of cultivate a bit of hopefulness about it. And so some classic examples of that would be actually what the young people did with the school strikes would be to be noticing how many millions of people all around the world are caring about something like this which I was actually saying mm-hmm. is one of the co-benefits of the group actions as well um, but you don't um, but you can just be noticing and um, focusing on all of the people that care and that's a really important part of it um, another one mm-hmm. would be looking at how enormous wicked problems in the past have been solved by the concerted efforts of the population, people agitating and governments then creating policies that bring us in line. So then there's lots of big examples. So there's apartheid and there's the suffragettes, the women getting the vote, there's um, the end of slavery. There's a whole lot of big issues that have been improved enormously from how they have been in the past. Uh, so that would be a second example of mini-focus coping. And the other one would be then, and this interrupts that the problem of doom as being a switch off mm. for people, would be to be considering the benefits of a zero-carbon economy or world. So what would it be like to be living in a world with more active transport and eating lower on the food chain and um, more interconnected communities, um, sharing resources, more holiday <laughs> closer to home, um, uh, all those sorts of things. So that can also be a space of sort of cultivating hope as well. So it's one model, mm. emotion, problem, yep. meaning-focused coping, um, and mm-hmm. all of them are important. And then the other model that I often use, and a lot of psychologists use this model and a lot of us actually use it who are also climate activists or work in the climate space, and it's acceptance and commitment therapy. So many people have heard about acceptance and commitment therapy. It gets summarised with the acronym ACT because a lot of it's about the actions, the acts that we do. Um, And Mm. so when I'm talking with people about this, I draw a triangle in the air and because there are three sort of main points to remember. One of them is opening up to thoughts and feelings and one of them is being in the present moment because it's a mindfulness-based therapy and the other one is doing what matters. So down in the open up to thoughts and feelings um, part of the triangle, that's about being uh, noticing what feelings, what those terribly uncomfortable feelings are and just allowing them to be because they're there. We can't do anything about them. We call feelings involuntary neurological events. They just come up. We can't make them not come up. If they come up, they come up. And that's completely fine. It's completely normal to be feeling angry and guilty and distressed and 
um, guilty and (laughs) panicked and all of that about climate change. So Mm. being able to just notice and name the feeling and make room for it and we teach people exercises for how to do that. Um, And... um, and opening up to thoughts is also about being getting practiced at noticing what are the thoughts that we're having about anything in, in life, but maybe about the climate change. And it might be about might be thoughts like, "It's too late. Can't do anything about it. This is just going to be awful. Um, I shouldn't really have children because their life will be shit." All those sorts of thoughts that might come into your head again involuntary. Mm. Don't ask for thoughts <laughs> to come into our head; they just come in all day. Yeah. And often all not. Mm-hmm. And um, getting better at just noticing the <laughs> thoughts. This is a sort of a, a yeah. practice that we that psychologists are often teaching people to do. You can learn it anywhere. You can YouTube how to do this. Um, just the, the the trick is all in the practicing it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and yes, yeah, just learning to notice the thoughts and what they are, and then just to to notice whether that thought's helpful. Or unhelpful. So an unhelpful thought might be a thought that makes you actually feel just enormously wretched. Of course, that's not all, because the other part of the of the um, model of ACT is to be in the present moment. So practicing just getting your attention back into the present moment. So being yeah. able to just get back into the present moment and living your life in the present is a really good thing to do. And then, mm. like, wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> The actions, the act, the thing doing what matters. This is a really critical part of the acceptance and commitment therapy model because we have a rich and fulfilling life when we're doing what matters and what matters to us is what um, we most value in life. And so we spend a lot of time working with people about what are your core values and Mm. you might have different core values in the domain of your relationship that you have than you have in the domain of your work and they might be different again to those in your sort of community life. But nonetheless, knowing what your values are and then acting in line with your values is really important. So a value sort of means nothing if you don't actually do anything. You have to do something and we do things with our legs and our arms and our words. So when you Mm. do something that's in line with your values, A, they're values, so they're they're good, you know, they're valuable, probably going to be something good. Um, Plus you feel a sense of having a rich and fulfilling life. And so that's awesome. So very often the thoughts and feelings that you're having that you're getting better at noticing and naming and making mm-hmm. room for and just allowing inform your values. So if, you know, there's a lot of them about um, uh, climate change and your concerns about the, the national environment or rising temperatures and everything, it's most likely that you're going to have a set of values around sustainability or uh, compassion or you know whatever and so but again remember I said just having those words in your mind does nothing unless you're actually doing something so then acting mm. in ways that are following those values so doing things that are sustainable or that are compassionate or whatever and um and and then you're busy then you know that's busy because same time as you know doing all of this you're mm. running your life and doing your job and raising your families and making your meals and all those sorts of things so yeah no I think like they are such valuable insights and like I know that it was interesting our our eco-anxiety post and we did a few Instagram stories about it as well it's the most engagement that we've ever had like there's so many people out there that are experiencing these feelings of ego anxiety and and doom and like i i know that these 
um, strategies that you've been talking about are going to be so valuable to them. So I'm so excited to share them. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, like on a personal note as well, I, I feel really privileged in the fact that like I have been able to like I don't really get bogged down in the feelings of eco-anxiety because I'm always turning them into action like straight away whether that be like helping people understand uh, like topic areas more or guiding them towards sources that they can then do the education themselves so obviously that's the strategy that I've taken um, but having this full suite of of different strategies that you've mentioned today will be so beneficial for people who don't necessarily take the same avenue that that what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of these things are written up um, in some of the materials on the Australian Psychological Society website. So that's a good place mm. for people to pop and have a look. Yeah, I'll definitely share some some links and some of the uh, different research papers and TED Talks that you've mentioned today. So I'll leave them in the show notes and I'll put together some posts for Instagram because this stuff is so valuable. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's something that um, Lizzie, the, the person that I run Project Planet with, we talk about this a lot and I guess we've been talking to people about this in the community as well, is the momentum in the climate movement and the feelings that a lot of people are sharing in terms of there being a lack of momentum at the moment. I guess like since the last federal election, it seems as though people are kind of like complacent and like just kind of expect that the government right now is taking care of things and and that they don't necessarily need to be as active in climate action right now. I'm interested to, to get your thoughts on how you think we can keep momentum going um, within the climate movement. Yes. Uh, well, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me whether I thought that we had lost momentum because I was thinking I really don't have a way of measuring that. And, <laughs> you know, we often can't know these things unless we're doing – well, we can't know these things unless we're yeah. doing good research. And, you mm. know, the research increasingly every year when it comes out, um, looking at people's concerns about climate always show increasing levels of climate worry and concern. So we have to extrapolate from the research that Mm -hmm. people are maintaining extremely high levels of uh, concern. Uh, This is one of my favourite ones was an Australian Institute Climate of the Nation report that was done in that first year of COVID. So GDP was down by 7%, right, Mm -hmm. massive, and our concerns, despite COVID, <laughs> and we didn't even have mm-hmm. a vaccination in, uh, our concerns about climate change were at a record high. Yeah. Uh, and 74% of people were very or fairly concerned about climate change. It went up to 88% if people had had, had a, what they saw as a direct experience of climate change, like mm. being a trial flood or something. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, and 10% higher for women than for men. There, I did have a, some data for you. <laughs> There it is. Oh, I should have said that at the beginning when you were asking. No, that's okay. (laughs) We're looping it back. (laughs) 10%. 10%. Remember that, Susan. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, so, you know, are we losing momentum? Maybe not. Uh, Maybe not. Because the price is always ever increasing um, because we haven't solved it yet. Um, But it is nice to have a government. You know, I think mm. I did say heave a sigh of relief and go, oh, all those teal candidates got elected. You know, this was so obviously the the uh, the climate the, the climate election. But how to keep the momentum going being their critical question. 
How do you keep your momentum going? I think, and it's something that I mentioned earlier, like I find so much value in having a community of people around me, not only that I can have these sorts of discussions with, but that share the same values or that want to be able to engage in the same climate action or go to a climate rally with me or like share information. Like I just love being able to talk to people about climate change and about sustainability. So that's that's what where my momentum comes from yeah. and that's what keeps me motivated yes. uh, within this space. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is a really good answer. <laughs> you answered your own question to me. Very psychological <laughs> I just did there, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> I think that you're right, that uh, it, the momentum comes from being with a community of like-minded people who also give a shit about the environment. And, um, and when that community of people can be a fun and energising place to be, then you are drawn to it because there are intrinsic rewards just with being with that animated, um, those animated people. And so actually that's also a really important point because within a group, within a community, the chances of everybody getting down and despondent simultaneously are pretty low. It happens every now and then when a devastating report comes out and everybody in the group has read it Mm. and everybody, you know, falls in a heap but usually there will be somebody who can keep the their um their active hope alive and active hope is a is a a a thing a sentiment that we cultivate through um through being very aware of the high stakes and the possibility that we're not going to succeed in restoring a safe climate in time to prevent some pretty bad tipping points but that we're nonetheless prepared to keep going and keep doing everything we can to make the world a better place for ourselves and all species um, regardless of the outcome and so yes when you're within a group it's usually the case that there will be somebody who can still maintain the hope and that you can take it in turns to get despairing and take a break. Because the other thing that I was thinking as you were asking about that, you know, the, the, where the people lose momentum from time to time is that mm. it is okay for people to take a break and put their tools down mm. for periods of time with the plan to come back into it again because that's a bit like what a weekend was designed for. You know, exactly. You need you need rest yeah. to be able to keep going um, mm. and for, for your mental health basically. Yeah, you need yeah. to be able to switch off at yeah. times and mm. step back in when you're ready yeah. to do so. Yeah. And so um, if you can find a way of taking a break in a – low carbon way Mm. Um, because yeah because the other one that i was going to tell you about before the limited behavior tokenism rebound rebound effect is when you've made all these carbon savings you know you built a very energy efficient house and then you blow it all on an overseas holiday or something Mm. like that that's a real phenomena humans do this we have a habit of rebound (laughs) blowing gains Yeah. yeah It's called the, hey, honey, let's take the Prius and drive to Darwin effect. (laughs) I love it. Yes. I've had so much fun talking to you today. So 
at the end of every single one of our episodes, we like to leave our listeners with an action item. We say that it's something, so our podcast is called That's Hot. It's something that our listeners can do to get hotter and keep help the world get cooler. Um, obviously, today we're talking more about eco-anxiety. Um, so I want you to give our listeners something that I guess like your biggest recommendation to our listeners to help them deal with their feelings of eco-anxiety, if you had one tip for them. Uh, it would have to be to breathe out, actually. I forgot to mention that before. Yeah, the out-breath <laughs> is our friend. When you breathe out, a nice slow out-breath, you relax your diaphragm, you mm-hmm. activate the ventral vagus nerve, which is associated with feeling safe and connected, and um, that helps to complete the stress cycle. It helps to mm. um, move your cortisol. It helps to in a whole lot of different ways. So I, it has to be the out-breath would be my big tip. I love that. I love it. I will definitely take that in <laughs> and do I'm that more. To breathe out. <laughs> I actually do find myself holding my breath a lot. It's so strange. So I will take that on board and, and make sure that I'm breathing out. <laughs> yeah, we do. We either either breathe or we hold our breath when we're stressed and anxious. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Susie. I had the best time. <laughs> You're very welcome, Tegan. I had a lovely time talking with you too. <laughs>